Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. Welcome aboard. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I am I'm the host, Brady Huggett, and um, the guest today is Jeremy Levin. So uh, for, for listeners who've been um, downloading these podcasts for a while, we sort of you just sort of know what these are. These are discussions with financiers, founders, researchers, um, those who are helping build this industry, those who have helped build this industry, those who bridge the divide between uh, academia and an industry. And this is no different. Jeremy Jeremy was a physician um, before he got into biotech, before he came to the U.S., and he has a long history in pharma, biotech, and he's now CEO of a, a startup called Ovid. But also, we talked about his background, and um, we had this conversation shortly after the results of the presidential election in the U.S. Uh, this is a big deal in America, of course. Um, it was a particularly nasty presidential race. Much of that nastiness was brought to the table by Donald Trump. Um, that is still resonating in this country, and I think uh, not only the U.S., but the rest of the world has sort of watched this race with fascination. So it was on our minds, or at least in the back of our minds, as we sat down to talk. Um, and as he says, when you've seen tyranny, as he has up close, um, it influences the way you think about the world. So at the end of this podcast, uh, we basically just talked about the election for a bit. And um, so this has made this podcast a little longer than normal. Uh, I like to keep them at about an hour. This is more like an hour and a half. I apologize. Maybe, you know, listen to half of it on your commute and then half of it on your lunch break. I don't know. But uh, I'd like to thank Jeremy. You know, I usually say my thanks at the end, but I'd like to thank Jeremy up front for uh, coming into the studio, for having such an insightful and, and measured conversation with me. So that's it for now. Listen up for your First Rounders podcast with Jeremy Levin. Give and family. family. I've got lots of family dotted around the world, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, uh, Israel, uh, England, and can fly them back and forth to see me or I go and see them, but generally they're to here because it's a good experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's maybe maybe we can start there. So yeah. uh, you were born in South Africa, right? Right. Yeah, and you lived there for a while. We lived there until the early 60s. Uh, we were forced to leave. And so, how, let's see. And your 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 parents were from there? No, my mother is born in Lithuania, and her parents fled Lithuania and came to South Africa. My father's parents came from Russia. 
huh. to South Africa, where he was born, uh, a little town called Craddock. And he lived there. They met. He fought in the Second World War. They met after the Second World War. They got married. We were born. And then we were forced to leave South Africa in the early 60s, uh, primarily because of his political views. He opposed apartheid. He strongly opposed it and did not feel that we could live in a country where apartheid was the, the law of the land. So let me. So your father was basically an immigrant. Yes. So was your mother. Yes. Right. So neither one was born in that country. They no, my father was born there. My mother wasn't. Oh, okay. Yes. So your brother. Your, I'm sorry. Your father was Russian stock, but yeah. then okay. So he was born there, and he was. I think. I think I read. He's a political journalist. That's right. Yes. Right, so that not not only did he have um, political leanings, but he was he was publishing them. He was publishing them, and he also published uh, journals to come and explore the country, see how wonderful it was, and his whole delight was what was happening in. Central Africa. He watched what was called the wind of change as colonialism walked away from Africa, leaving uh-huh. behind a lot of very problematic countries. But he got to know all of the leaders, and he knew pretty much all of them from the north, from Ghana, all the way down to uh, South Africa. And he published extensively. He wrote, he started a, a newspaper which was read by only an exclusive newspaper by all of the prime ministers of the Commonwealth. It was called A.J. Levin's Confidential News Report. And I love it. I love the title. Yeah. And it was at the time, you know, it banged out on a, on a, on a typewriter and he'd get it into the hands of the, all of the prime ministers. And so that, that was his sort of like, I live here, this is what's happening on the ground. That's exactly right. So the days before you had internet way, way, way before you had internet, didn't even have faxes. Right. So here you had a letter arriving from a man on the ground who knew exactly what was going on, knew all the leaders. So he traveled all the time. Uh, the result of that was that he became very clearly in his mind somebody who opposed what had happened in South Africa in 1960 when Favut brought in essentially the uh, the elements of apartheid which were built on the Nazi party of uh, the Germany. Germany, and in addition to that, the terrible segregation that had been established through the British law in, ni- in the 18, 19, it's a 19th century, which segregated laws for non-whites and whites. So the law, the, Tom Pakenham writes a wonderful book on this, but the, the essential framework for apartheid was laid out in the 19th century under British law, where non-whites were given a different legal system to whites. Uh-huh. So we, we were forced to leave. We, Let me back you up, though. So yeah. but w- the question that arises for me is, how did how did your father get the ear of all these prime ministers? If he's typing this thing out and publishing it himself, how did he get it into the hands of the people that he thought needed to read it? So it sounds like it was pretty well circulated. It was well circulated, but very discreetly circulated. Uh, a couple things pertain to that. Number one, Africa was very different to what you and I imagine. Individuals who could make a difference. Individuals really did get access to all of the right people. And because if you were somebody who was in the right place, prime ministers in the, in the, um, in the Commonwealth wanted to hear about it. For example, Lee Kuan Yew wanted to hear what was happening in Zambia. In Zambia, they wanted to hear what was going on in Australia. In Australia, they wanted to hear what was going on about the copper mines in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Very significant discourse. And as a consequence of that, he would either speak to the ambassadors or he would actually go to those countries and meet with them. Uh, so, for example, he would travel from Central Africa and meet with the Shah of Persia. Huh. 
He would meet with various leaders around the world, and I suspect he met with the vast majority, if not all of them. Amazing. And your, and your mother, what, what did your mother do? My mother is a human rights activist. She is many years, she's 90 years old today, thriving, living in London. She has an honorary doctorate in, from University of Essex in human rights. Uh-huh. She's written the most, the definitive book on child slavery. It's been circulated in, I don't know, if not all countries, but certainly all members of the UN. It's one of the most published books, multiple uh, versions of it. Uh, she ran two not-for-profit um, human rights organizations. The first was anti-slavery, the oldest human rights movement in in, in Europe, actually. Uh-huh. I believe in Europe, certainly in Great Britain. And then the other one called Justice, which was the uh, arm of the International Court of the, of the Hague in England. And so she's had a many, many year track record of that. So that's basically both your parents are political human rights activists. If, if you, I mean, they're both working for the same thing. I don't think you would call them political. I think what you would call them much more is activists in belief. They really had firm values. They believed fundamentally in freedom, fundamentally in, in democracy, fundamentally mm-hmm. in situations where you cannot have or believe have any kind of discrimination at all gender, race, no matter what, this was a core fundamental belief for them. But they were not political in the sense they never joined political parties. Yeah. They never became radicals. They never were involved in supporting a political party. They supported values. Uh, before we move on from that, where do you think that, that value, that value set came from? And, and there's quite a couple, right? I mean, they obviously saw that in each other and thought, well, we're aligned in these in these ways. So... I'm very convinced that where this comes from is the sense that when you move from one country to another, you have the ability to see what is working, what doesn't work. And as a Jew after the Second World War, they had already fled several nations because of discrimination. Remember, as they married, they'd just come out of a watching a convulsion around the world, the Second World War, where literally tens of millions of people had been killed by a a dictatorship, which wasn't just one person. It was nations of dictatorship suppressing different kinds of individuals. They were lucky. They were in South Africa, not in Lithuania. They'd be dead. We went back to my mother's birth home this year. You and your mother? Yes, me and my mother and my brother. We went to visit the graves that she, where 600 of her remaining family were killed. We know exactly when they were killed. We know who killed them. And we know how they were killed. And we went to see the home she was born in. We went to see the cities around Lithuania where the vast population, 95% of the population was killed. And it was striking, just as an aside, for me to learn that they were all killed between August of 1940 and December of 1940. That date is very important because those dates are when the Russians withdrew first in August of 1940 and when the Germans arrived. So who killed them between the time of the departure of the Russians and the arrival of the Germans? And the answer is their neighbors. And if if you think about that, 
that they knew that. My whole entire family knew that. We have letters up to the date about a week or two before my great-grandmother was killed, describing how things were hard, but not to worry about the children and the cousins. Everything would be fine. And then nothing. And then the neighbors denying that they'd even lived there, the neighbors denying that there'd ever been anybody there, but they were. All right, so let me get this straight. So the Russians have pulled out of Lithuania. That's and correct. The Germans, which we would assume the Nazis coming in and, and slaughtering half of Europe at this point, they're not there yet. They're not yet there. And that then their neighbors being non-Jewish Lithuanians slaughtered them? That's correct. And uh, that's sort of, you know, we, looking back, we think, well, the Germans are the ones who put this sort of anti-Jewish hate out there. But you're saying it was somehow already present in the Lithuanians, or it was... It's not somehow. It was present. Lithuania has a very complex history and it's a history where, first of all, Lithuania was quite remarkable. It invited, as Jews were expelled from other parts of the Europe in the Middle Ages, so Lithuania and the ruling class of Lithuania saw them as a very talented, extraordinarily gifted group of people who could yeah. be merchants, who could be people to help I increase the economy of the country. Mm -hmm. So they imported, they gave them open egress to Lithuania. What they didn't do at the same time was to gain the support of the peasantry, the Lithuanian peasantry. So when uh, Lithuania had finally established what they called shtetls, these tiny little villages, which had very, each village has a very specific characteristic. Jews were allowed to do only certain things in them. But nevertheless, they created marketplaces. They created an yeah. economy inside that country, which is extremely robust. Mm -hmm. That was prior to the period of times when the Soviets took over. Now, the Soviets took over and ignored the Jews. They did not, they were not interested in the Jews. The Jews were, they recognized them almost as another group of people, but not, nothing to do with them. Yeah. So when the Soviet Union invaded Lithuania, they then killed off many of the nobles, and they became deeply hated by the indigenous, the original non-Jewish uh, Lithuanian uh, populace. So that Lithuanian populace gradually grew to hate the Jews as well because they felt that in some way the Soviets were favoring the Jews. They weren't. They were the, just ignoring them. They were just ignoring them. Versus killing the nobles. That's exactly right. And so what happened, all that anger, all the frustration against these immigrants bubbled up into an absolute holocaust. 95% of the Jews of Lithuania were killed. And the vast majority of them were killed from that period of time of the withdrawal of the, uh, of the Russians, Russians to the arrival of the Germans. The vast majority. So how did your mother get out? My mother left before that. She, I have her birth certificate. I have her national papers saying that she's Lithuanian. She left, and with her father, they were, try, they were already worried about what was happening in Lithuania. They were concerned by the rise of nationalism around Europe, worried deeply that what would be occurring would be that there'd be a backlash against the, the small populace. So yeah. each of the families sent out individuals to try and establish a foothold in another country. So they could all leave. So they could all eventually leave. They went for freedom. They really went for freedom. They went for. They were worried about fear. They were worried about repression. They were apolitical. These people were workers. My grandfather never had an education. He was a woodman. My father never finished high school. My mother was the first person in her family ever to get a degree. My 
grandmother never had a degree. So it's quite remarkable when you think about it. They were only coming to work, and they fled going north, going south, going east, wherever they could. Those that survived the Holocaust that occurred were those who fought. So, for example, in Boston, I discover I have a great-granduncle and his children who fled because they fought against tyranny and went into the woods of Lithuania as as fighters, it's fighting the like Germans. Armed militia. Arm, armed militia fighting against the Germans, against the nationalists, against the Nazis, and survived and were eventually swept back by the Soviets, and then they came to this country again, again, looking for a home, looking for freedom, immigrants. So I think it's a, if you ask your question, where did this come from? It came from the belief, fundamental belief, that there are certain things that go on in society that are right, which include the freedom to choose, the freedom to make your uh, democratic, uh, make a democratic process work for all elements of the society, and a very, very strong ethic to work. There is no question. You, you work anything. My father was a reporter. He was a digger. He, const- he was a carpenter. My grandfather was a farmer. I was born on a farm. I, he had dirt under every fingernail. Uh, these, these are people who wanted to do things. These are not people who understood finance. They didn't understand money yeah. except to make your family valid. Provide. That's right. Now, yeah. when my, father, my grandfather did something else in South Africa, very interesting man, he decided that he understood that the non-whites were being suppressed. And what little money he had, he wrote down a little book. He'd stand at a corner, and he would give that money and note note it down, give that money to any non-white family that approached him. And asked? Or he would just say? No, he'd say, you have two conditions. I'm going to give it to you if you're going to do either send your child, and this money is for sending the child to school, Uh or getting yourself a car so you can go to work. That's it. I'm not building your house. I'm not letting you buy other things, but if you do those two things, you can have the money for it, and you need to come and show me that you're doing this. And when he died, that little book disappeared. We have no idea how much money. We do know it's substantial sums. He simply tore it up. He tore it up? He tore it up before he died. It was all gone. Why, I wonder? Because he felt that he'd made a contribution. It wasn't about getting money back. It was about making a better society. So throughout the family's belief is about how do you make a better society. And I think going back to my parents when they met, both of them from different directions had almost identical sentiments about how you create a society and the values in it. And there was one other thing. They both lived with nothing. And I mean nothing. nothing. When I say that, it's difficult for people here to conceive of. But my grandfather arrived not speaking a language, not having money, no support system, and only his two hands and a willingness to do work, both sides of the family. And quite remarkably, on my father's side, his father fought for the British against the Boers. His brother fought for the Boers against the British. Quite remarkable. Everybody had their own view about what was right, but nevertheless, it was a, a family that really committed itself. My father entered the war, uh, went into intelligence, and committed himself to fighting the Germans. Well, not the Germans, fighting Nazism. Yeah, yeah. 
Then after the war was one of the first people ever to go to Germany because he knew it wasn't the German people, he knew it was Germany. It was yeah. the Nazis. So that that's how they met. That's what they... And they I guess recognized that immediately. Well, I don't know if it was immediately, but it, they must have recognized that in each other, right? Yes. And then, and then um, I mean, we can get to this, but clearly handed it down to their own children. We, yeah. we I don't know if I can say thank you enough to both of them. We were refugees twice with them, where we were stripped of everything. And when I came to America, I came to America with the intent to do what I was going, to, what I was interested in doing, which is explore what I, what I believed was the greatest democracy in the, in the world, the greatest economy in the world. I didn't really understand the elements of the economy, but I understood what democracy meant. It means the ability to make a choice, yeah. and to do so with a vote. And so, as a consequence of that, when I came here, I wasn't thinking how much money did I have in the bank, how much money could I make in America. The question was, what could I build? What could I do? What would the society allow me to do? My brother David <coughs> is the CEO of McGraw-Hill Education. Yeah. has exactly the same philosophy. Um, his wife, uh, Lindsay Levin, is a leader of an organization called Leaders Quest. And it's not a quest about money. It's a quest about how do you find purpose in the companies that she supports. And she does support companies. How do you take leadership in crisis? How do you seek purpose? So he's in education, I'm in health, and obviously all elements of our family are like that. My wife's family, the same thing. Great wealth created significant benefit to this country. They're the founders of TJX. They, uh, what's TJX? TJ Maxx. T- oh, really? <laughs> yes. I do know what that is. Yeah, go ahead. And they essentially created an, uh, a great American institution and have spent the t- their entire lives as adults giving away, creating hospitals, creating educational centers, and ensuring that there was a huge benefit to the society, knowing, that, like us, they had started with nothing and they'd created something. So I think there's a, a sort of trend of philosophy that runs through the family. We're going to come back to this. But I, so one, one thing before we move on, when, when you went to Lithuania with your mother... Um, how how was that for was that, was there any sort of catharsis was there i mean she had she couldn't have seen that since whatever how old she was when she left i mean it must have been 70 80 years i don't know brady the it was a very interesting trip for a couple reasons number 1 my brother and i decided that after a 90th birthday we would take her just the three of us and we arranged for her birthday in london but to our surprise a dozen different members of my family, young members, said that they wanted to come with us. So we ended up having my mother, her sister, my brother, myself, my sisters, my her sister and her children come. So a total of about 12 people at three different generations. I think the overwhelming sense of that was, first of all, this is very important to understand for all of us, and I think everybody understood this, how a society can turn on minorities and eliminate them, and it doesn't take much. So the first thing was the the extraordinary recognition when you stand in front of a house that is abandoned, and it's the same house that housed people, and you can see the pictures of the people who lived there who are no longer there. 
So all generations looked at this. All generations had the same reaction of extraordinary impact. How can a, a society turn on its own? The second was a very interesting reaction. The three generations had a different reaction. My mother and her sister were deeply saddened. Yeah. They were emotional. This was not cathartic. This was simply sadness. To stand at the graveside of 600 people who are your direct relatives. You know, that she knew. That right? she knew yeah. and that her family, and we have pictures of all of them, that yeah. had been slaughtered over a few days in exactly that spot. And to stand on their grave is haunting. For those of us who are their children, my brother, myself, our first cousins, we felt an unbridled anger, an anger that the societies would allow this to happen. And at the same time, to the extent that we could, a re-commitment uh, to the resolve that we will never allow this to happen to us or our children, if we can possibly prevent it, or for that matter, for any children, if we can possibly prevent it, because it represents the worst of the worst. And that was our connection to our parents and our children. Quite remarkable. They're brought up in a world which has never faced war of any substance, any national war. Of course, they're all aware of Afghanistan. They're all aware of the terrible Middle East conflict. But not the draft, not the entire not the draft. country mobilizing, right? Not the right. scooping up of populations into vans. Yeah. Not the, not the things that I saw in South Africa that my brother knows about. Mm -hmm. the, literally the scooping up of people off the street into vans and disappearing them. What they did feel was that this was quite distant, that the Lithuanians that we met were quite friendly. They're real human beings. They're real people. And they were able to distance themselves from the individuals who committed these terrible crimes in a way that my brother and I couldn't. But at the same time, I, I believe that all of them felt a re-commitment to the idea that this couldn't happen. And yet, I believe that they are slowly understanding that if you look at Rwanda, if you look at other things, it can so easily happen. It can so easily happen. So, But they were different. They, they valued this. They loved supporting their grandparents and their parents. This for them was about supporting us. Or, or, or about sort of history. This is my family's history. So, this, so is, your, this is family history. Your mother goes through it, and it's it's just, I don't know, an opening of a very old wound and sadness pouring out, right? This That's was correct. her life. These are all these people are dead, and they're standing on the graves. For you and your brother, you're walking you through. You're almost still thinking like these people, right? This is the place that killed my family. You're angry at the concept of this town, these Lithuanians. And the next generation is even further removed and like, well, that was history. Things aren't like that anymore. Um Am I, am I, getting I think so, but le less angry. See, I've had less than less angry at Lithuanians, but a deep recognition that this could happen again. Yeah. For example, one of the most remarkable countries I know of is Germany. Remarkable, wonderful people, and yet the great grandparents of those people killed my people. But the people today are unparalleled in their thinking, in their inclusiveness, in their democracy. A remarkable nation. I did not get that same universal feeling from the government or from individuals in Lithuania. I believe that there's a lot of growth there, but they were on the individual basis I did. So I wasn't angry at them. I was more concerned. 
Yeah. I was concerned that the forces that bubbled this up so many years ago were still there. We're going to come back to this for obvious reasons, but I want to get into your history, too. So you're... Um, uh, it was my understanding that for something I don't know that your father wrote or in, just in general his observations of South Africa got um, the, the family needed to leave right for safety reasons yes no we would have been he would have been imprisoned he wrote articles critical of the government he interviewed them and refused to participate in the new pass laws which required that uh, if you were black you were, had to live somewhere you would not be provided the right to live in certain areas, that if you were in what was quoted unquote an illegal, you would be subject to being scooped up and thrown back north somewhere in some distant place, but not in the white areas. So he was very much adamantly opposed to that. And they said, you got you to gotta get out, or he just left? They gave him a choice. They gave him a very good choice. They said to him, you have two choices. You can either leave now, and I mean now, or you can accept a job working for the government. You have two choices. And if you work for the government, you'll become the government publicist. If you leave now, you will get into your car, you will take your suitcases, and that's it. And that's exactly what we did. We got into the car. Everybody. Everybody. The, uh, at me, my sister, my parents. And we drove. We drove for four days north through what was South Africa, we stopped several times by the police, searched several times. And you said we're leaving the country, or, or your friends were just driving? We had papers to say this. Oh, okay. We were right. leaving the country. We were forced, not forced, we were out of the country. Yeah. We crossed a bridge into what was then Rhodesia, and what was still under, that was under British rule still. And we found a hotel. We had no home to go to. Uh, we stayed in a hotel called Meekles until our money ran out. How long was that? I don't recall, to be perfectly honest. Well, I mean, like two days or six years? No, no, no. We're talking weeks. Weeks, okay. And by then, we had found a small home, a tiny home, which was a couple rooms in an area called Highlands. And we moved into this. My father started to try and make living. He founded a newspaper, first of all, a newspaper for non-whites. Um, and he started reporting, and the non-whites read it. And it was a... When I say non-whites, I mean there was a newspaper for whites... Uh, which was the Rhodesia Herald, uh -huh. um, but largely in supporting the local government. He became a reporter again, and that was his his living was as a reporter. My mother sort of held the family together, um, and we spent a lot of time being ostracized by the local white community because they knew we'd been driven out of South Africa. South Africa. Yeah. Many of the doors were just slammed in our face. Um, and then sometime later, just as Ian Smith declared what was called a unilateral declaration of independence, he was going to set up an apartheid nation. Uh, we were my, One of my father's very dear friends who'd fought with him in the Second World War was a, um, was a, a, a policeman huh. and warned him that he would be arrested the next morning. That night, he fled, taking my sister and himself by car across the border into Zambia, again running, leaving myself, my mother, and by then my little brother. Oh, so, okay, that's when your brother came in. Right, yeah. okay. My brother's born in Rhodesia, a country that doesn't exist any longer. That's an interesting way to, that's an interesting part of your history.
Um, okay, so your father, I, I know that you eventually landed in, in the UK, yeah? Yes. So how did, was this, was this when that happened? Not quite. My, we, they went to Zambia and then my father went to England. They had a struggle getting me out. Now, they, it was difficult getting into Great Britain. Uh, so I went to several countries. I went to Israel. I went eventually to England. With family? No, by myself. How old were you at this point? Uh, I was in my mid-teens. Oh, geez. And it's not old. Early teens. Yeah, not old. And arrived in Great Britain, went to a military school, which would accept me. And um, that didn't. I didn't fare well in a military school. Uh, and, and expand on that. You mean like you were not into being um, following orders or... No, I was definitely into following orders. I loved it. I loved the rugby. I loved the sport. Um, I really enjoyed it. I was very good at it. Um, very much enjoyed the rugby. But the, there was a significant... I, there was one Jew. There were four... Uh, sorry, there were two Jews and there was four uh, um, Ethiopians. And remarkably, at the end of every week... When they handed it was a boarding school. When they handed out punish, punishments for infractions such as leaving your table untidy for uh-huh. not being dressed properly, it was us six who got punished. So it was a pretty interesting environment. Uh, can I can I just stop for a second? I, I mean, how um, what was your mood like at this point? Like everywhere you turn, things are. Uh, it's like your family's being kicked out. You're being oppressed. You've seen horrible things. I mean, were you, I, I, I don't think people get, were you depressed about the state of the world? It's maybe a little young for that sort of thing, but how did you, what was your mood like? Uh, you finally get to what, you know, okay, we're, we're, we've, we've left Africa, that's a mess, there's apartheid, everything's terrible, or after my father we get to the UK, and now I'm in a boarding school where I'm being single out for being Jewish. You don't think much about it. What you do think about is the smell of the earth, the next game of rugby, that you're going to win, that you none of this really bothers you, so what if they come at you? Uh, it's a matter of irrelevance because they're not addressing who you are. It's them. Now, if there were things that I did that was wrong, so there were things that I did were wrong, well, fair and good. You you got punished for that. But the overwhelming bulk had never, never once depressed me, never once, because we had the sense given by my parents that a good would eventually come out of whatever we were doing. And it didn't matter how much money you had. It mattered much more that your values were sound, that you actually did what was important, that you didn't deviate ever. Let me repeat that. That you didn't deviate ever from the values that you'd established. And we all do things that are slightly off track. I know that. It, we can't, we're not, nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. But every time you were faced somebody who was coming at you, somebody who was being unpleasant, somebody who was trying to pick on you, whether you were beaten down or whether you stood up, you remained under one concept, that your values were solid. And that made you feel pretty good. So I'm not, I've never once been depressed, honestly. You're not that type, yeah. I know, I'm just not. I'm not, I'm an optimist. I believe firmly that you lose battles, but the war will eventually be won. When, when you when you say you know that they're not necessarily attacking you, Jeremy, they're attacking this idea. Oh well, he's Jewish, so we're going to do whatever. That's, that, that's easier to shrug off because you know it really doesn't have anything to do with you. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So at some point, some point we turn to medicine, right? At yeah. some point, your interest begins to yeah. align with medicine. What what caused that? <laughs> I have to chuckle. I just I'm I'm a I love 
learning about new things. Really love it. Anything that is new that's exciting. I was eventually thrown out of my school. Boarding school. The, no, the, the military school. Oh, the military yes. school. Sorry. It, it was an unfortunate occurrence, but probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And I, I went to a school called Holland Park Comprehensive. Oh, wait. Was this warranted? Was it warranted? Yeah, did, did you I, do something that actually got you thrown out of, out of school? Uh, I, I would argue not, but they might they, argue okay. yes. But at the end of the day, they won't focus on my education, which is what I wanted and what my father wanted. He wanted me to get a degree that he'd never had. Yeah. And they simply said to me that I could at best make a good foot soldier, which they didn't understand what I mean. A British foot soldier. I'm not talking about an American foot soldier, an Israeli foot soldier, somebody who's really committed to a volunteer. I could be a good drafty. And I suspect that's not that was the maximum that they saw that I could do. And I didn't feel that that I felt that there were things that I could do beyond that. Mm-hmm. They put me to a school called Holland Park Comprehensive. And I did pretty badly. I got for the British A levels, I got two C's and two D's, which is about as bad as you can get. These are the entry exams to university. Right. Where getting into Oxford requires three A's or four A's. Getting into a second tier university would require at least an A. I had one enormous advantage, and this is where who I was was very lucky. I had an incident, and this is where it got this this is the starting point. An English teacher became ill, and a substitute teacher, a woman, was brought into the class. First time the class had ever had a woman. And the, the class dismissed her. They went berserk. A very it was a very rough area, a lot of drug taking, a lot of kids who were underprivileged, and a lot of privileged kids as well at that time. This is how old? This was in late teens, mid mid to late teens. And this, myself and my best friend at the time, who happens to be somebody quite well known, and we'll come back to him in a second, went up to her and said, don't worry, just be patient, we'll stand with you, and they will all calm down and we'll have the class. She never forgot that. And when I came asking, what should I do now? What's this thing called university? She said, let me speak to my friend, Stuart Hampshire, at Oxford. Oh, so she was, they're gonna be, she was the teacher for the rest of the year? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. okay and so. she did. So this is one of those cases where a teacher makes a huge difference in a child's life. She spoke to Stuart Hampshire, who said, well, come to Oxford, and we'll talk to you. And he spoke to me, and he said, okay, interesting history. Go back and do these exams, the entrance exams, and if you do well enough, we'll let you into Oxford, no matter what your A-levels are, because we don't think that that school will give you the the grades that you need. And he was right. That's exactly what happened. The young man who stood with me next to me at that school was a man called Hillary Benn. Hillary Benn subsequently became a minister in the British British government. So that I started there. So I, she she saved the two. She got him into, into no, college? No, he decided he didn't want to go. He didn't oh. want to go to Oxford. He wanted to go to Sussex, and he did. I loved science. The only group that I could even relate to was zoology because I came from Africa. I knew about animals. Uh-huh. Zoology was my route. I wanted to go back to Africa to be a game ranger. Uh, none of that happened, but it's okay. No, yeah. <laughs> the longer I stayed at Oxford, I met extraordinary people. I decided to go and visit every single professor I could and just learn what they were doing. So I met Nobel Prize winners. That's the advantage of Oxford. You can just knock on their door and say, can I talk to you? And if you have enough 
patient and enough something to say, they'll listen to you and they'll talk to you, Does, even if they're not your tutors. At that time, it was a, a, an environment of great stimulus. And I then knuckled down. I started to work. I realized that the only thing that I could do which would get me to where I wanted to do was to complete my degree, and I did. I got an exceptionally good degree in zoology and was immediately offered by one of these professors the opportunity to do a doctorate. And the doc- So that started a journey. And I loved it. It was incredibly interesting. It was about DNA. And my question for my thesis was, if you have a meter and a half of DNA, a couple yards of DNA, how many, how can you take each cell and have that DNA folded inside your cell? What is it that folds? How does it fold? How can you compress it like a ball of wool inside the middle of a cell? So if you think about it, you know, you're a, a cell nucleus is two to ten microns. Yeah, we're talking about compressions of a two of a nearly two meters of DNA, DNA into, this, into yeah. this minute fraction of uh, the speck. And I felt that that was the most important decision I had to have, the most important thing that could go on in my life at that time. So I focused just incredibly deeply on DNA, how it was so-called supercoiled and the energies that were in that. And so I studied this, not only the experimental energy, but also the theoretics, theoretics behind it, which is, this, which is really the, uh, the mathematics of how DNA gets coiled. And something very fundamental happened. I knew nothing about diseases. And one day I asked the question, well, what happens if you nick the DNA? Does it all unwind? Does it sort of like burst open, yeah. pop out of the nucleus? The answer is no. But it affected the way that the DNA made genes. Genes made proteins. And then I started asking questions about, well, hang on a second. If that's the case, then what happens when it goes wrong? What do you see? What are the things that could break the DNA? And what happens to the cell? And then what happens to the human being? And to my astonishment, I discovered a disease that was well-known but very rare, a disease called xeroderma pigmentosa a disease which the rays of the sun hit the cell, go inside, and the UV light breaks the DNA, but the, the individuals, these individuals, have a defect. They can't fix that. It has something that you and I do every day. We fix the DNA because the sun hits it. So yeah. when it doesn't happen, you get a cancer. Yeah. And some, there are three different skin cancers. In their case, they don't have the ability to repair the DNA And if they stand in the sun, their skin develops cancers all over them. Wherever the sun hits, they develop cancers. And it happens rapidly. And so I asked to meet one of these patients and went to see one. The minute I saw that patient, my life changed. Because at that moment, I realized the theory that I was talking about, the mathematics, which was really interesting, the test tubes that were really important to me, the experiments that are running, all boiled down to one question. How would you help that patient? Right. It sounds like that's what pushed you from academia into, okay, we need to be able to make products, right? Or help that, people. That is exactly right. right. Okay. So what happened then? What, what, what happened to you? So this I, is, did you have your PhD yet? No. No. Okay. I was doing my PhD. And then I thought, you know, if I'm doing my PhD, I might as well get ready to do medicine. So I went to the professors, and again, they said to me in an amazing way, this had not been done before at Oxford, 
we will grant that all the, stu- the preclinical medicine that you've done, because you've done a lot of this in zoology, you have to do a few exams, and you can do this for the first time ever with one other chap, a chap called Alan Jones, that we could actually study our PhDs while we were doing um, our preclinical medicine, never before done in Oxford. Now it's common. So we did it. It took us, the two of us did it. We finished the preclinical, and I was awarded a scholarship at Cambridge, where I then went from Oxford to Cambridge to finish off my medicine in what was now changed again, a compressed clinical period of time. Instead of three years doing clinical medicine, you do two years jammed. You have no holidays. You basically... No summers off. No summers off. You sweat it. There is just a crammed two years of clinic, one of the most exciting times of my life. And I ended up working for the professor of surgery doing after I'd graduated. Yeah. I did a, I really got involved in transplant of livers. But during that period, a second thing happened to me. And the second thing was I chose to study uh, a, dis, a, a, a chemical which was derived from the venom of a snake. This chemical was supposed to reduce your blood pressure. It's a chemical which became one of the greatest drugs ever to have been seen. And it is. It derived from an adder. It's called captopril or capitin. And it was one of the first ACE ACE inhibitors, hugely successful. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my thesis on how it worked, how you took a poison and turned it into a medicine. And that put me on the path of going into drug discovery. So you you never worked as a physician? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, there was no, in Great Britain, there was no easy path. This drug to go to work as a, in the, what was biotech. This, there was, at that stage, very old-fashioned pharmaceutical companies, which basically pushed, from what I could see as a physician, pretty old-fashioned drugs. And so I decided to learn a little bit more about medicine. And I practiced medicine. I practiced medicine <coughs> in conflict, in academic hospitals, and in the bush. I've never practiced medicine in private practice. In fact, I've never asked a patient for money. I don't know how to ask a patient for money <laughs> for treating them. Um, and I, so, I advanced through that. I went back to South Africa. I worked. You did? Oh, oh I, I missed this part in the research. Okay, so you went in and, and sort of um, something almost like Doctors Without Borders, but you were going to help people in need. I had a fellowship in uh, in from, I took very good roles in Hammersmith Hospital and then subsequently in Switzerland as a fellow. And then I was invited to go to South Africa and to work in what was then the last great medical school, which called Grootske, otherwise spelled Groot, G-R-O-O-T-E, uh-huh. Grootske, a wonderful hospital at the time, and was embroiled there in uh, and was by uh, really overtaken by massive riots that were occurring, uh, race riots, where you had the police shooting down people, had a lot of murder going on in the streets, um, and so spent a lot of time doing almost combat medicine. I would st- I would describe it as combat medicine. My last patient, I know absolutely to this day, he's a man. I was an internist, not a surgeon an internist. This gentleman was 
brought to the front door by his family, a Muslim family. And I remember his name, but I won't give it to you. But I, I, in the interest of confidentiality. Sure. He'd been shot in the back with a high-powered rifle, with the rifles that are carried by the police. The surgeon was triaging all the injuries, and they gave me this man to treat, knowing that he was likely going to die. Mm -hmm. This was about 6 o'clock in the evening. And then they gave me a surgical tray, and they said, try and save Go ahead, him. yeah. I had a student, a nurse, and an, a junior anesthetist. And in the, we operated on him in the, in the corridor, trying to stem the bleeding, trying to stop the damage. And he died. He died uh, around 11 o'clock that night. Um, very shortly thereafter, the police came, told everybody that we couldn't talk about it, took away the notes. Your surgical notes. Surgical notes. Yeah. Took away everything. Took away the body. And... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Indeed, the only reason that there's reason to believe that what I'm telling you is accurate is that next morning I wrote a letter to the superintendent of the hospital and circulated it widely so that it couldn't disappear. Now, by complete chance, I've never forgotten that man's name, and this is where social media becomes wonderful. In America, three years ago, I tracked down the family, the family of that man who died in South Africa and have been in touch with them. They live here now? No. Oh, no, no. They're so in, in America, Africa. when you in America used social media to find them? That's correct. And they are there. The reason I wanted to do is to tell them the story. Because they didn't know. They didn't know. They dropped, they dropped, uh, they dropped the body off, the, the man off and left. That's right. The right. only thing that the... So they the, never got a burial, you're saying? They, I don't know if they got a burial, but I do know that the wife, who remember very vividly her words, her words to me at the end of that night were, thank you for treating us as if we were white. You're depressing me. These stories are depressing me. They're not. Uh, they 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 what build one. They are not. They're not depressing. They are. You have to think about the bravery of that family. Yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Uh, yeah. The the part that depresses me is that. Uh, well, whatever. We're way. Off. Anyway, we're gonna come back to this. Um, 
How did you start your first company? <laughs> right, you, so you're practicing so I, medicine. I'm practicing medicine, and then I heard about this. I heard about this extraordinary revolution in America. I was in Switzerland, and I heard about this thing called biotechnologia. Yeah. And it was because of a company called Biogen. Biogen had sent a man called Wally Gilbert to oh, yeah, raise money sure. in the Biogen Center in Geneva. I was a doctor there. I thought, gosh, I've got to go listen to this. I listened to him. He was inspirational. But what I most struck by was that here was this extraordinary country, America, that not only was it such a, a beacon of, to my mind, from abroad, having come and gone through these experiences of freedom, of democracy, but here you had this capital that you could allocate to really interesting scientific ideas. So I listened to him, and I thought I'd come to America to experience that. So I found a job in a tiny, rather than go to on and my all my all my physicians, uh, teachers and mentors in England were very angry at me because here I was not going on to be a professor, but disappointing them going to the commercial side. Right. But I felt there was so much innovation uh, in America, so much capital that I ought, I needed. I had to be here. It was really important. So I came. Uh, I was sponsored. Uh, to come here. I'm an immigrant. I'm now a citizen. Um, and I had the extraordinary good fortune of ending up in Washington, D.C., in a biotech company. And the only, well, I knew a handful of buildings in the United States. One was uh, the Watergate building. The second yeah. was the White House. The third was the Empire States building. And uh -huh. thereafter, I was pretty ignorant. It was in the Watergate building. It, it was? It was in the Watergate building. And this is this is um, Cadis, right? No, this wasn't Cadis. This what? was a thing called Focus Technologies. Oh no! And how did you get? How did you find that? How did you find it? By a very good friend. I had no way of knowing things. It wasn't internet, but a very good friend had been had connected me with people who uh, were working close by, and they said, "Well, we've never heard of this thing, but except for a company called this." And I had said, "Well, let me go to California and see about this company called Genentech Chiron and." Right. Let me go and see an Amgen. Let me see what they're doing. And yeah. I flew over there. And people in California are quite remarkable. I didn't really understand what they were talking about. They said, we will conquer the world. We will do all these things. And being very conservative and very, very uh, dressed with a tie, I felt, well, of course they can't do that. So let me go somewhere sensible. Because <laughs> these guys are crazy. Right? Because <laughs> these guys are crazy. And it turns out they were crazy wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, in my wisdom... I took the role at this tiny little company called Focus and rapidly realized that my sole role there was to stand up and say, Jeremy Levin, Oxford PhD, Cambridge MD, we need money. Oh, so you were the CEO? No. I was the head medical director. But I knew what my role was. And I, that dissatisfied me because it took me away from patients took me away from the, what the core of innovation, and all I was being was a prop. Yeah. So I left it. I built a business plan, took what little savings I had, and with the support of my then father-in-law, uh, tiny amounts of money, I bought a failing division of a company called American Cytogenetics. And American Cytogenetics helped me create what was called Odyssey Biomedical, a genetic testing lab, and I became chief salesman chief bottle washer, CEO, and general fix-it. And I would, we turned that company around. It was, it had, it was doing amniocentesis. Mm -hmm. And 
I simply went to talk to doctors and said, what's the problem with this? And I talked to patients, and I understood that at that time, doing an amniocentesis would give you an answer in 21 days to a month. And imagine the horror of having to wait for that in your pregnancy. Yeah. And so the one thing that I did was to drive the time. Of, I made a promise that we would get the time down from one month to three weeks to one week. And we were able to do that. And that turned the company around. Yeah. I, we didn't have money, a lot of money. We started to make some money. And then Genzyme bought us and thought that being the, the CEO and owner, I'd go off and start up another thing. But I thought, no, I could learn a lot from Henry Tamir, I could learn, who was then CEO. I could learn a lot from Kathy Klinger, the head of research. I could learn a lot from Dave McLaughlin, the CFO. So in the early 90s, when I, they bought me, I joined them and had a terrific experience. They taught me how to, about genetic disorders like Gaucher's disease, mm -hmm. how you find a drug for Gaucher's, how you sell a drug to Gaucher's patients, and how you do mergers and acquisitions. I, I owe a lot to them. That grouping, Henry particularly, was fundamental in that. And Henry taught me one thing at that time in Genzyme, which is really critical. He, I always knew the patient mattered. But what I didn't understand was how much passion you had to bring to the table to ensure that that patient got a great medicine and how unremitting you had to be in focusing everything you could on the quality of that medicine, on the precision of what you told the patient and understanding where these patients were and how much you were actually affecting their lives. So very, very instructive period of time. After a while, Henry said, come and live in Boston. My wife and my children at that stage said, no, we want to stay in New York. Oh, okay. So you were married with two, with two kids by then? Two kids. Two, two kids, little, okay. Two, yeah. And so when you came to America, they came with you? No, I met my wife by complete chance in Washington, D.C. You mean like you stepped on her foot or what? Pretty much somebody said, come to an event. Uh, actually, it happened to be a, the, a, uh, a horse race. I very rarely go to a horse race. And uh, it was, a, it it was a Virginia Cold Club. Oh, okay. It wasn't like, what's the one in, in um, the huge horse race? Oh, Preakness. No. Preakness. Right? no, no. No, okay. But the horses were beautiful. It was a boiling hot day, and I needed some shade, and stood in the shade and bumped into this girl. Four months later, we were married. Are That's, you serious? Four months? Yeah. This is now 29 years ago. How did you know How did you know that quickly? That I mean, four months seems like... I knew it immediately. How? I have no idea. You just knew it? You just knew it. And she knew it? Yeah. What, I mean, that's you're the, you're the thing they make movies about, that sort of story. <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay, you, you met her, you you married her. You guys are all living in D.C. No, she was living in New York. Oh, I, New York, I'm moved, sorry. I moved to New York to be with her. Okay, okay. And um, said, Henry's like, come to Boston, and you said... Nope, the kids are here. My family, family matters most to me. Uh, work is good, you can always find work, yep. but family matters more. So you stayed in New York? Stayed in New York. And uh, we started thinking about what we do. Henry said, well, let me help you. This has been a characteristic. You never walk away from something except in the best possible relationships with somebody, mm -hmm. always. And Henry was incredibly helpful. I then joined what I thought in, was a great company called Cadiz. Uh, during that period of time, one of the shareholders of that company went into great extremists, uh, a man called Sam Waxel at Imclone. I know him, yeah. And he sold his stock to Carl Icahn. Yep. 
Carl Icahn put nine members of his employees on my board. Out of how many? I've, out of the board of 11. Yeah, okay. So it was an interesting time for me. And then I had a choice to make. Do I stay working with people that are, were quite difficult, had a very different agenda from me? Really? Can, I, can I press you on that? Yes. The agenda, d- difference in agenda is what? I mean, we can assume, well, we, we know what Carl Icahn's agenda is. It's, it's to increase value of the companies heavily invested in. That's correct. And that differed from yours, which was more patient-focused? Mine's much more. I believe, and I've always believed, that if you do well by a patient, you'll make money for the investors. Always believed that. And I believe I'm right. Every time you look to increase one half of that equation, purely, surely, just purely value of stock, you diminish the other. And while you, you are, there are short-term benefits, there are long-term catastrophes. And so I... These are philosophies. In some businesses, it's clear that the shareholders' interests are not looked after by management. In other instances, you have shareholders who've got no interest in the actual recipient of the product. Mm -hmm. And so they force the company to do things which are inequitable for the patient. So whatever, whatever one thinks about that, there's one thing that is very clear to me. While... I may not at times agreed with Carl. I absolutely believe that he was extremely direct. I have the greatest respect for the man. I believe that while many people don't care for him, I have a deep respect for what he has done and how he does it. And while it wasn't easy for me, uh, I didn't care for the dialogues. <laughs> In fact, often didn't care for the dialogues. Uh-huh. I believe he's a very, very straightforward man. At the end of the day, I left that company not because of my misunderstanding or anything like that with Carl. I left the company because I had a different philosophy of what one wanted to do with the company. And from there, I was very happy to help Carl recruit Charles Wohler, mm-hmm. the chairman of GlaxoSmithKline Europe, to be its chairman. And I left Cadiz. Unfortunately, they lost a patent fight. The company went down Subsequently, I joined Novartis at that stage. And with the great pleasure of having, during the time that I was with um, with, uh, with Cadis, I'd had the chance to meet Dan Vesela and others. And I was extremely pleased to meet them. It was very remarkable. They were just beginning the voyage of what was, what is to be, what was then to become Novartis. It was the merger of Sandoz and Siba. Uh-huh. And Dan, I think, decided to take a chance on me and asked, would I be willing to join Novartis, join Mark Fishman, who was then working in Boston? I think I was, I can't recall exactly, but I'm sure I was only the third or fourth employee to join what was then became the Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, the research arm of Novartis. And had a marvelous three years, not three years, sorry, five years, learning about how you do transactions, how they could help build a pipeline, uh, how you dealt in a large organization, a massive organization. It's amusing to me to relay a conversation I had mm-hmm. with the person, the last person to interview me, who is today's Novartis's chairman, and that's Jörg Reinhardt. And he asked me only one question. Why would you want to join a large company? <laughs> which, <laughs> which was wonderful. And at the time... What did you say? I told him, I said, I think that biotechnology will catch you up. Hmm. 
I think that we need to know how big companies work in order for little companies to be successful. Yeah. And that's why I'm here. You like the answer. I'm well. I I then spent five six years. Yeah. I got the job. Yeah, <laughs> and that. But so, but so this is where you started to pick up your um, your acumen around uh, strategies for building companies, uh, partnering alliances. Yeah. So this is this is kind of it's not like it's away from medicine, but it now it's focused on on business development. Really, it became clear to me that with the United States was such a large palette. When I mean that, it has so many different companies that no one company could possibly cover the waterfront of all the research. So why would you do all of your research internally when, in fact, outside of the walls of that company, there were many hundreds of times the amount of money, amount of uh, research projects ongoing? So one of the most interesting things that I had was asking the question, if we're interested in patients, then don't trap yourself into preconceived notions of what's inside the company of innovation. That's a good beginning, but the real essence is how much innovation lies outside of the company. How much, what is that huge, huge sea, that ocean of innovation that you should be fishing in? And you need to go to it. And if you don't take that attitude, any company that believes that it has the, the answer internally is mistaken, profoundly and utterly mistaken. And you have to have a good balance. You have to have a balance of your ability to take that innovation, to really uh, sharpen it, mm -hmm. to develop enhance it, yeah. it, develop it, get it to a point where it really can be a medicine, bring to the table the skill of a large company that has immense skills in development regulatory, and at the same time take the incredible innovation of the smaller companies, which is their lifeblood. They live by this. They live and they die by whether or not they have something interesting or not. And so I developed a, a very strong philosophy that I believe that there was a complete synergy between these two industrial phenotypes, it's the sort giants of, and the... Yeah, like old, old medicine versus new medicine, right? This is the way old farming used to work. We would have everything, and it would all be in-house. Biotech, obviously, smaller, individual, more innovative. And the way medicine is done now is those have to be combined. They had to be combined. And yeah. I absolutely was convinced that all the technologies that you saw in biotech would migrate into big pharma. And that in some cases, some of the skills that you saw in big pharma would migrate into biotech. And that at that stage, which is, again, the early 20, sort of between 2000, 2010, I felt that you'd see a massive influx of knowledge both ways. And you've seen that. Yeah, for sure. This, this sounds, I mean... No surprise, your next job at Bristol Myers, right? This sounds just like the string of pearls. So let, let's t tell me how you got the job at, at Bristol Myers. And um, my understanding is that they were facing a patent cliff for Plavix, and they needed to, to boost their revenue. And it was part of your job was to come in and get new things going in this company. A little bit more complex than that. In fact, I got the job because I decided again. Daniel Vasella and the team asked me to move to Basel. In fact, they were incredible. They asked me to move there with the family to do everything. I would. But I didn't feel, as I said to you, my real focus is innovation. My focus is really a desire to be close to patients. And I also didn't want to disrupt my family. Remember, I had spent my life migrating from country to country. Yeah. And I wasn't going to do that for a job. My family was more important. And I knew that my mission, which is patients, is medicines, could be accomplished completely by not necessarily in a company, it was company independent, but rather by philosophy of how you contribute to the industry, how you contribute to patients. So I decided I didn't want to go to Basel. Had, and 
unlike many people who immediately get disposed of in companies like this, Novartis was terrific to me. They basically said, look, do anything you want. We'll help you find something wonderful. Uh, we'd like it to be good to our reputation and yours. And I thought that that was an extraordinary approach. So for a year, I worked diligently with them. I looked at the industry. I was offered many jobs. In fact, one large pharmaceutical company who will remain nameless thought they'd actually got me to accept the job, although I hadn't. And they announced it internally. But well, Why did they think they were you... I, mean, I said I loved everything. It? Oh yes, I was. I was heavily considering it. Was the most. It was one of the top two jobs in the company. But um, you had not yet committed to them. I had not yet committed yeah. to them, and I did not commit to them because I did not want to move away from innovation. Yeah. I really didn't want to move away from innovation, and they wanted me to do something which was not quite innovative. So they announced it internally. Well, they began to, and it, became, it leaked pretty quickly. Oh man! Um, but I, I, I've retained good relationships with them. In the meantime, Bristol was on the ropes. Jim Cornelius had really taken over in extremis in that company. There was a judge supervising management meetings. They were under consent decree. The top tier of that company had been dismissed. But they had a number of things which were quite remarkable. They had a great head of research. They had, who I'd known for many years, Elliot Siegel. Mm -hmm. They had a superb set of understandings of cancer, and they still had a name. They had a fantastic name. The yeah. Plavix Cliff was kind of irrelevant. The Plavix Cliff was simply about whether or not there would be capital to do something. Not, it wasn't fundamental to me. But the other thing they had was it was this company was on the ropes. This was a company where if somebody like me were to come in there, You'd be doing so to make a difference, and you'd be doing so to make a fundamental difference, and you'd be doing so in an environment that could, might potentially really fundamentally change that company, if you could. So you could make a huge contribution to them. And You like that challenge? I love that challenge. I've always loved that challenge. That's it. Can you make a difference? Can you help the patient that's there? So to the surprise of my colleagues in Novartis, I chose Bristol. And many of them told me on leaving Novartis, that company will be bought within months and you'll be out of a job. And I said, you know, that's a chance I'll take. And they said, well, we don't, we'd never take that chance. I said, and I pointed out to them that in my life I've taken chances. <laughs> so I believe in taking a chance. No chance, no reward. I joined Bristol. I must confess it was remarkable. Uh, you had a... People have very preconceived notions about what a company, a large company is. In Bristol, the vast majority of R&D people, as in every farm company, come in and fail in their research every day. Sure. There's a difference, though. In that company, they were determined to do something. They didn't know what. And all that needed to happen was all these terrific people needed to have a door open to say, look, look outside. Look what's there. There's so many exciting things there. All your skills can be brought to this. So I conceived of and walked through how I felt that company could best succeed in defining what the string of pearls was. It was, was, that, a, was that your phrase? No, it was Jim Cornelius's phrase. Yeah. It sort of entered the vernacular. It has. Yeah. Jim, we had a wonderful debate over it. It was a marvelous... Jim was, was saying, well, it, this sounds like a string of pearls. I kept on... You string them together. You string these really great transactions together, and then 
you bring him into the company. And he said, well, that's, that's got to be a string of pearls. I said, that's it. <laughs> that's the name, right? That's the name. So the string of pearls was really the concept behind it was, look, what is the strength within a company? What is its core bones of that company? And ask the question, for each one of these understanding of a scientific area, could you build multiple transactions onto it so that you suddenly had a deep pipeline, a fundamental pipeline? And if you created that string, not one transaction, but two transactions, but three transactions, you would create an unparalleled strength in an area, not necessarily all areas, but one area. And it wouldn't be, that's an interesting medicine, we're just going to grab it. It's in brain disease. Or that's an interesting right. medicine, it's heart disease, let's grab it. It would be, no, we're going to go after one area, we're going to nail it down hard, and we're going to be the best in the world in it. And that's sometimes very difficult because it means you need to then clear the decks. You need to stop doing things that you're not good at. You need to focus your resources, which are finite, in areas that are going to give you a great opportunity. So String of Pearls for me became, first of all, an intellectual exercise, 2006, 2007, defining what were the real opportunities. And it became clearer and clearer and clearer to me that Bristol's great strength was really in two areas. One was in oncology. Yeah. And the second was virology, cancer and viruses. Not all viruses, but many. And as I thought about it, I then started looking, what's new in cancer? Well, you had Genentech, Novartis, and many others doing lots of really good work, but all of them avoiding the fundamental novel, novelty that was coming along that I could see and that a man by the name of Brian Daniels could see in Novartis, the head of, in Bristol, the head of development, and several of his people. A whole team there had worked on the idea that you could take a white cell and ask the question, why aren't, why aren't you, Mr. White Cell or Mrs. White Cell, why aren't you attacking the cancer like you attack bacteria? Why aren't you destroying that cancer before it wakes up? And can we make you do it? And can we make you do it? Yeah. And surely this is the norm because otherwise we'd be getting cancers all the time. Mm -hmm. And as we looked at this, it became clear that they had an experimental program with a company called Medirex. And then that experimental program program required that they pay lots of money and that they look at an orphan cancer melanoma a tiny cancer with not a very many people but highly fatal so you, if you could find something that worked in them you'd make a huge difference to their lives but in order to even contemplate bringing that in I had to think about how do you build the company to be ready to buy something like that so we built a string and that string with several transactions before that, before we got to Medirex, allowing the company financially to absorb a new company, and that was a transaction with a company called Otsuka, where we had to shift revenues around. That's a purely financial entity. Yeah. So this is learning how to ingest a company and That's fit it correct. inside your... Okay. That's correct. Yeah. The second was to digest a biologics manufacturing company. Huh. Who was that? And that was a company called Zymogenetics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third was, can we be successful as a company? This was actually, the, of all of them, the most important was the acquisition of a tiny little company run by a woman called Helen Kim out in California where you needed to galvanize the, the British, the uh, Bristol-Myers team to say, 
I know we're depressed, I know we've had a tough time, but just show them that they could do something novel, that they could do something great. And the second they did that, all other types of transactions became possible. So at the end, we galvanized them. We then started to put the financial underpinning for it. We then bought the company that would help us manufacture and do things with whatever we'd buy. And then I persuaded uh, the team to buy Medirex. And it was quite a hard persuasion. because big, was, That was a big buy. For, for the time, very brave. Yeah. Uh, you have to you have to consider that the company was was had been on the ropes. You had no great confidence in its pipeline, and nobody was really happy to take a risk. And I felt that it was critical that if we could buy this, we would break. And it worked well. We would break open the whole area of immuno-oncology, the white cells attacking cancer. And this was a lot of persuasion internally a lot of persuasion. I would say that at the end of the day, the vast majority of the senior management was dubious. I will say that the bravery in doing this really came from Jim Cornelius, Mm -hmm. who was willing to support the concept that I was propounding, and Lombardo Andriotti, who subsequently became the CEO. And then the tacit support of many people, including Elliot and Francis, not necessarily active. They were quite right. Their Pfizer had just shown that their trial of a similar drug had failed, mm-hmm. and they'd sold it off. But I felt committed enough that when that team came to me and said, okay, are you willing to put your neck on the line for this? I was quite happy to do so and pushed forward and acquired the company. So I applaud them on that because yeah. that was a brave step for them to take following something that I felt very strongly about and that I would do for them but you can't drag everybody. It's not as if one can make it happen. You have to bring along people. And they, I think they were braver than me. <laughs> Do you think you, you helped sort of change the, the culture? Yes. That person? Yeah. yeah. Ma- that, maybe that, that was your goal. My goal was to change the culture. And by changing culture, you affect strategy profoundly. Culture trumps strategy every day of the huh. week. Well, you did leave. I mean, you were at Bristol for years now. Yes. And you did leave, but I don't know why. And it was went- very simple. I loved Bristol. Bristol was terrific. Some period of time, I, one of the happiest jobs of my life, actually, because we were getting it innovative. We yeah. could see the future. You yeah. knew you were making a difference, and it was really shaping a pharmaceutical company to become a different kind of company. But at the same time, remember what I said, patients matter to me, mm-hmm. and challenges matter. So I, along those routes, I had, we were approached by Teva, who's asked to consider whether we'd combine. And, you mean the two companies? Yes, at the yeah. time, and we felt that that wasn't appropriate. Both companies felt it wasn't appropriate, a normal kind of conversation. And it was didn't go amount to anything. It, wasn't, there was no, it was very low level. But I did take a look at Teva, and then out of the blue, I got a call from Teva to meet with some of their directors, who I knew uh, quite well, I met with them in New York. They asked me if I'd consider taking over as CEO, and I said no. I why, why did you say no? Because I was extremely happy at Bristol. And, and Teva then was mainly a generics company. It, no, it, no, actually, uh, well, on, to the outside world, it was mainly a generics company. But actually, it was a Copaxone company. Yeah. And that was their revenue, right? That was, that was, revenue that was their cash, yeah. cash flow. 
70% of their cash flow came from Covaxin. I was very unimpressed. But then I thought about it, and it bubbled in my mind. I did a lot more work. I could see that they were reaching millions and millions and millions of patients, that they represented one in six of all the medicines in the United States, and that around the world they probably represented 20% of all medicines, in most, and some 100% in some countries. Wow. And this really was quite remarkable. But still, I wasn't going to go. And then along the lines, quite a remarkable call happened, and that came from the office of the president of Israel, who asked me to look at this job seriously because he felt that Israel needed to bring in immigrants who could, or not immigrants, new blood to revitalize the industry. Now, how he got involved, I never know, but we, we, we became very good friends, Mr. Perez and I. So he said, he almost called and said, for the good of the country, will you come and that do is this true. job? There's no pressure there. There's no pressure there. Yeah. Well, so I felt that this would, you know, if this was so important to Israel, so important to one of our allies yeah. of America, and so important to America, that it would be incredibly foolish of me not to look at this. So I looked at it. I insisted that they inform the CEO of the company that they had asked me to look at this. They hadn't done that. And Mr. Mr. Well, General Yanai flew to New York to speak to me. And after that meeting, I agreed to join the company. Huh. As CEO? As CEO. Yeah. I didn't join immediately as CEO. I said I wanted a period of four months when I could join the company and travel around it, understand the 110 countries, the 74 different languages, the where the $20 billion of revenue came from, the 50,000 employees. My you God. don't just jump into that yeah. blind. I yeah. needed at least four months to begin to get my arms around it. That, But you were there less than two years. I don't know what happened. I think it was an issue, again, where maybe the board and you were not seeing eye to eye. Probably had something to do with patients, I'm, I'm guessing, but I don't, I don't know. Um, can you tell me anything about it? Well, I can only let you know that I was let go for no cause. I, had a, I have a great respect for the employees of that company and a great respect for its importance in the industry. However, I, as I've said to you before, I have very firm views about how you create and build a company. Mm -hmm. And I felt that at the time those views were well articulated Clearly, the board felt differently. And while I won't for a minute speak for them, they simply let me know that this was not working. At which point of time, I left. Yeah. So it was an amicable parting. You're like, this, we, we sort of are agreeing to disagree on the way to run this. I don't even know what yeah. the reasoning was. But you left. Okay. So, I left. But so then this leads me to the next question. Ovid being your next venture, yeah? Yes. That's correct. And which is, you've now gone the opposite direction. You're going bigger, bigger, bigger companies. Now this is a very small company again. This is a startup. Right. No, I had the option of going the other way again, keeping with the big company. Um, in 2000, having been at Bristol and Teva, I felt very strongly that the core of what you had to do, just reinforce what I was talking about, which is all about patients. Everything's about a patient. I did get the opportunity to run a large company, and it was a very delightful conversation. A major company, larger than Teva, mm -hmm. 
But I felt very strongly that one of the things that I was going to do with the rest of my career was focus on a direct patient contact. And as I dialogued with this incredibly, absolutely superb board, superb board, it became clearer and clearer to me that the mission that I wanted, which was a focused, innovative, patient-centric approach to how you build companies, was one which would be very antithetical to some of the basic premises of this particular large company. And as I looked at it, it also became clear to me, that's number one. Number two, it became clear to me that what was important to me was to execute on those very principles. And furthermore, what was very much more interesting to me was at the same time I took the year after leaving Teva to look at the whole field. What are the fields that were bubbling up? Where would we see huge growth? In the same way that we saw growth in immuno-oncology mm-hmm. in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then it explodes now, 10-year period, yeah. where would we see the same growth? And the answer is extremely straightforward, neurology. This is not a question in my mind. Not, <laughs> I think that's probably a pun. <laughs> but neurology is poised, in my opinion, for one of the greatest growths. And then the question was, how would you approach that? And I was fortunate enough to know a number of people. And one of them talked about this little startup called Ovid and its approach. And I met with the CEO, then CEO, Matthew During, uh, who's a neurologist, neurosurgeon, somebody who's done brain. He was a scientific founder? Scientific founder. And he said, look, come in, be the CEO of this company. And I said, no. Let you keep on a CEO. Let's just see how this. How, let's try and put the nails into the floorboards here a little bit. Uh-huh. And if we can do that, then maybe yes. This is not something uh, I can do yet. I'll just rattle around here, and I'll probably cause more trouble right. than, than it's worth. Right. You have to have something to run, almost like that. You mean? Well, like, no, it's you need to have more. You need to, the concept behind the company needed to be proved out. But I was quite prepared to fund him. I invested in the company. My family invested in the company. Mm-hmm. And we got one or two people to do, do an early $5 million funding just to seed the company, to see could we coalesce a group of really good people, execute a little bit, prove out the business plan, and take it from there. And once it became clear to me that the business plan, which was to focus only on orphan diseases of the brain, which include rare disorders like Angelman's or Fragile X or Dravet's, or RETs, all of these incredibly rare diseases which are horribly neglected, and yet there's about, could be up to a million people in the whole country affected by this, that here you could make a difference. The science was coming up. You had new medicines. You could define the pathways, unlike Alzheimer's, which is very difficult to define, very big science, uh, huge amounts of capital. In these small areas, you could really make a difference, and maybe... Just maybe, as you understood the pathways in these disorders, you'd get a glimpse of some of these larger disorders. So if you understand epilepsy in a tiny genetic epileptic company, maybe you'll understand about how to do it in a, in a bigger area. But you don't need that. You need to be able to help the patients in these small areas first. And I felt very strongly that if I could bring the right team, the right science, the right capital to bear, we could make a real difference to these families and that's what we've done. So I'd gone from 50,000 to less than 50. Uh, I find it hard at times. Here in New York. Here in New York, in Times Square, at WeWork. 
I've, defi- I've decided not to live in large, fancy boutiques. We raised another $75 million from exceptional funds led yeah, by yeah. Fidelity. Yeah. And um, we're building the company. We're in phase two. We have uh, several number of different programs. And it's, uh, it's a voyage of great delight because you're in phase two now for for which which for angel angel angelment yeah we'll we're going to be doing that in adults then adolescents then pediatrics and subsequently we're also going to be doing this in fragile x and we have a number of other undisclosed programs but i think the greatest delight is we have families coming into us we have families with angelmans coming to see us we have families with fragile x coming to see us Families with genetic forms of epilepsy coming to see us in our building. Yeah, so it's another. It's a challenge, which you like. Yeah. Yeah. It's directly going to affect patients, and you're fully invested in. I don't mean financially. I mean emotionally invested in it. This is what Henry d- described as the passion. I'm passionate about it. Um, I'm sorry, it's a long story. No, though. it's a great story. I want to. I want to. Can we talk about the election? Do you want to? With pleasure. So the the things you're mentioning, right? The 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 terrible story of your mother going back to Lithuania and what happened in that time frame between the Russians and Germans, right? I mean, that in some ways mirrors the the rise of populism in the U.S. through this election, what we saw with Brexit, right? Where people are sort of feeling like others are taking away from them and there's a rising anger. Do you see that? Do you see that sort of comparison or am I off base? I, I think that one would hesitate to make those comparisons because in America we don't have the history of pogroms. We do have the history of blood on the street fighting for freedom. And slavery, of course. And slavery. Mm -hmm. And if you look over the most recent period of time, one has to be careful, very careful to draw distinctions between the two. The rise of populism here is not so much a rise of populism in the way that it is about nationalism. If it starts to drift into nationalism and racism and bigotry, if the new administration encourages that or allows that to proceed, then we will lay the groundwork for some very, very difficult times in America. Well, I think I think that is, uh, among those who did not vote for Donald Trump, I think that fear is already present, right? I mean, he, whether or not Donald Trump really believes those things, I don't know, right? I'm not, I'm not in his bedroom at night, but he built a platform that suggested he did, and that's what has people so alarmed. I mean, whether he feels that way, I don't know, but he suggested it, and that got him votes, and that was troubling, and it still is troubling. I mean, the, the country is, you know, I, I think even the people who voted for him were troubled by that. They voted for him anyway, because they feel like they don't have a job, and the economy needs a boost, et cetera, et cetera. But are you troubled by that? Are you troubled? So, I've lived under regimes which are terrible. I've met some of the worst people, governments in the world. I've been to Central Asia. I've met some terrible, terrible leaders, people who would dismiss your life in the flick of a finger. I believe very strongly that America has a, a depth and a strength which those countries just don't possess. What I fear is not what you've described. What I fear is a despondency of the good. What I fear is that the good, the people who are so strong here, even those that did vote for him, will become despondent as they find out that policies which they'd hoped for are not generating what they think, and will back away from 
involving themselves actively in political life. If they do that, if they, if they leave the reins of policy making alone, those reins will be pulled, picked up by some very, very bad people who are activists. And we see them. We see the various bigot-ridden organizations riding on the coattails of this election. Yeah. I do not for one minute, not for one minute, believe that the vast majority, even the substantial majority of this country, even has any time for them. However, if you leave the stage of political debate, if you allow despondency in an election like this to overwhelm you, if you do not involve yourself in supporting causes that are important, freedom, the rights of women, the failure to, uh, the failure to uh, fight uh, the bigotry that can come with racism, if you don't fight that, then what you end up with is you leave the stage completely free for those who are activists to rule. And this is not a question of left or right. This is a question, in my mind, of building on what is strong in America. America is the greatest democracy, but democracy is only valid when you exercise the rights to the levers and pull those levers. If you don't pull them, then you walk off the stage. It's just w one more thing. I, and So you've been, how long have you been in America now? I've been here since 1986. Oh, a long time. Okay, so... Uh, do you, I feel this way, and I, I don't know that I have the long enough view to say this, but I feel like the country's never been more divided. Of course, I wasn't around in 1900. I wasn't around for most of the real trouble. We had the civil rights. I wasn't around for wars, obviously. Um, but do you feel like they're... I mean, I do feel like they're very divided, and there is little tolerance between the two groups for each other. And that's what troubles me maybe more than anything. It's difficult for you and I sitting in New York to assess this. But when you cross the nation, and I've done several of several crisscrosses, there is a divide, but there's also a commonality. And some of most people are still very decent. Very decent. Oh I don't doubt I don't doubt yeah. that in a for a second. I mean I, I um, spent a lot of time in very rural areas. So I right. grew up I grew up in one too. And the the decency of, of the American person is I, I think almost unparalleled. But the inability to listen to others is what's troubling. I, th I don't disagree with you. I think if it, I don't believe that this is a time necessarily for listening. I think it's for hearing and understanding. But I also believe it's a time for regrouping in action. I believe that people need to understand that if you don't begin to support actively and firmly those elements that are important to you, be it gay rights, be it women's rights, be it the rights of freedom. If you don't actively support those, and also, by the way, the rights of those who would like to have a job in an area that is rural and don't have a job, if you don't focus on that and try and alleviate that and address those elements, as I am, you know, we await to see whether the new administration can or will address them. Yeah. If we don't if we allow ourselves simply to wait and have somebody else do it, then I'm afraid very bad elements will creep in. Yeah. And I, but I'm not as negative as a lot of people. Uh, oh, you're an optimist. I'm an optimist. Yeah. I'm also a believer in the democracy of America. And I believe that the, the levers of the democracy of America can make a huge difference. I also think there are national 
organizations that protect the rights that we need to focus on. ACLU. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly those organizations. So I'm, I'm not necessarily, I'm a, uh, an optimist. I'm a complete realist and I'm a pragmatist. The dem- democratic process has spoken. Whether we like the outcome or not is not the issue. Number one, there was a democratic process. Number two, there is now the option to go away and weep and cry and be anguished about it or, and this is what's great, to stand up tall, to start to figure out what's really important and to come together and to take action on it. And also, I also believe, I'm quite happy to do this, is to give the new administration the opportunity to demonstrate what its colors are, but to be prepared completely either to support or to oppose vigorously if they go to the core of what America is. And in my mind, for those of us who've seen tyranny, there are lines that can't be crossed. Completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, I'm an optimist. I'm, I cannot protest the results because the people have spoken, but I can absolutely begin to protest the policies if they do not fall in line with what I think this country is. So I think that's it. Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate the talk. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your time. A lot of fun. Thanks, Brady. So that's, um, that's the First Runners podcast with Jeremy Levin. Uh, again, thanks, Jeremy. I much appreciated the talk. Thank you to uh, the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. Thanks to listeners. I always like to say that. Um, and to you listeners, I, this, should, this is going to be out right before the year-long, uh, the end-of-year break. So happy holidays, happy new year if those things fall in your calendar. Um, next one will be out, I don't really know yet, but I'm, I think I'm going to record on the West Coast. So there's that hint. And um, that's it. I will talk to you later, and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.